And now, proper propaganda. Watch it. Pull my mic back. You like that? Journalists with journalists too. We can strike back. Hardcore reporters with orders from headquarters. Behind enemy lines. Sidestepping the borders. If you are just tuning in to Civic Cipher, I'm your host, Ramses Ja. And Ramses Ja calls me Q Ward. That I do. Um, and left to discuss on the show, we are going to be talking about black church, uh, something Q and I both know a lot about. Um, and then uh, for our way black history fact, we're going to discuss a very inspirational uh, woman by the name of Bessie Coleman, who was the first African-American woman pilot known for flying tricks. And uh, we'll get into that in just a little bit. Um, but first, we are going to discuss how to become a better ally. And this one is going to be a fun one this week. I'm going to play a video from TikTok. And all you got to do is listen. I saw this video the other day, and it was this white kid who went to a black barber for the first time. And he was talking about how it changed his life because it was the first time he got like a real fade and lineup. And I had a similar experience, but for me, it wasn't the first time I went to a black barber. It was the first time I went to a black church. Bro, we were in Florida, and I grew up in a Baptist church. We Googled a church nearby, and there was one that was like Mount Zion Baptist Church. So we we're like, oh, we'll go there. But we pull up, right? And first thing I notice is I'm like, oh, there's so many colorful suits here. Didn't even realize they made like purple and orange suits. I get out, I walk through the door, right? And everyone's just like, oh, hello. I was like, hello. And I kind of look around. And I'm like, oh, I'm the only white person here. I was like, oh, dude, I think this is a black church. Like I've heard about these, but I live in a small town in Southern Ontario. So obviously I had never been to one. So everyone comes up to me, most friendly group of people I've ever met. All these old black women are just giving me the best hugs, dude. Felt so loved, right? So I sit in my pew, service is starting. Choir walks out from the back, right? Okay, they all have matching robes on. I'm like, nice. Bro, they started singing. Let me tell you something. Black people singing gospel music? <laughs> nothing like it. I had goosebumps, dude. And they're singing, right? And they're, it's just getting better and better. Midway through the worship, dude, they're running up and down the aisles of the church. <laughs> well, the congregation is shouting and waving freaking hanky. All these old ladies had these like fans that spread out and were just fanning themselves and shouting. It was like, let's go. I was fire. I was jazzed, dude. <laughs> just like clapping my hands off beat because I have no rhythm. One old lady just stopped. She's like, no. I was like, yes, ma'am. Okay. So then the pastor gets up, right? Freaking snake skin dress shoes, like a purple zoot suit. I was like, okay, sir, you have my attention. Bro, he started speaking. Okay, no notes, no bullet points. I don't know if he was just making it up on the spot. The Holy Spirit was feeding him lines. <laughs> and then partway through his sermon, the, the organ started playing while he was speaking. Just, <laughs> dri he's dripping sweat. Just yelling, dude. Organs going. People are shouting and running up and down the aisle. I was like, this is incredible. I felt like I was getting like a halftime speech before I go out and finish the second half of the Super Bowl. Bro, I don't care who was in that service. If Charles Darwin was in that service and experienced that, he would be like, oh, there is a God. There is a God. I've been wrong. I've been mistaken. You couldn't help but feel the Holy Spirit, baby. I, <laughs> oh, man. I wish someone would come to St. Thomas, Ontario and start a black church. That's the problem. Any church I go to now around here just feels so boring and dull. I've grown up in church my whole life, but that was the first day i'd ever truly gone to church dude i love that i love that and uh so to become a better ally we're going to ask that you go to a black church doesn't matter if you're a church person or not just go and get some of the culture so amen with that said i thought that would be an excellent segue uh to talk about church 
or rather, is church racist? Hmm. So we're going to start here with a direct quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., where he says, 11 o'clock on Sunday is the most segregated hour of the week. And that is something that I have largely found to be true um, throughout most of my life. And more recently, there have been a lot more in the way of exceptions. But um, today we're going to talk about that, that and the exceptions as, as well, because we do want to highlight the good things. But uh, Q, tell me a little bit about your background with respect to church. Is this something you're qualified to discuss, my friend? <laughs> uh the late minister dr john h reese minister of music my godfather reverend dr william h reveley jr my godfather and pastor reverend estella seacrest uh, one of the first black female uh, ordained ministers by the national progressive baptist convention is my mother mm. so a little bit a little bit um and uh before i uh cite my qualifications um i do want to shout out the uh the originator of the tiktok video that we played earlier that came from a tiktok account called canadian chest hair um just want to make sure i give credit where it's due <laughs> i love it i love that guy man I, when i first saw that video it brought a tear to my eye because he was so excited and and i do want to talk about some experiences that we've had in church um but me i am also the child of a minister my father uh dr rudolph wayne taylor um was a minister for the church of god in christ his whole life and uh his father was a minister for the church of god in christ as well in fact a bishop um, and so all those fancy churches and all the fancy outfits and that sort of stuff that my friend Canadian chest here was talking about, I grew up in that, like in, in the thick part, like right in the middle. A lot of folks go to church on Sunday. I went to church every day. I was there all Likewise. the time. Yeah. Oh, no, I know. I know. <laughs> so this is why this is so strange. That this Teachers is meeting, Baptist training unit, Bible study. A choir choir rehearsal, <laughs> yeah. choir rehearsal, service, yeah. and more choir rehearsal, <laughs> usher board meeting, like all of it, man. Usher board meeting, <laughs> junior deacon meeting, junior trustee meeting, another <laughs> choir rehearsal, teachers meeting. Man, look, I'm, I'm, I'm knowing, I'm knowing, and that's the way uh, black church is. Now, I do recognize that you know a lot of folks do not listen to. They, they didn't come here to listen to gospel or anything like that. That's not what today's um, episode is about. We are uh, here to talk about really the cultural importance of black church and how divided church is. And this is a place where at least for black folks, we're able to share a lot. This, this has its legacy in the slave fields because the only time when you weren't working or sleeping, you know, you were, in church because a lot of the slave masters allowed their slaves to hold service and they had black ministers and they were able to dance and play music and, you know, enjoy themselves a little bit. It was like a break from, you know, the work they, on the Sabbath, they rested. Right. As long as you parrot their spiritual beliefs. Sure. Sure. Um, but you know, if we're being honest now, those are largely 
our spiritual beliefs. Black folks love them some oh, Jesus. Oh, yes. Absolutely. We, we love us but some Jesus wanna, now. And I want to be truth about the genesis of that, though. The oh, reason yeah, absolutely. The slaves were allowed to pray and worship was, was the way that yeah. worship to the God of their masters. Right. Absolutely. Um, and I don't and I don't want to ignore our uh, Muslim brothers and sisters, because there's a good amount of the population who uh, black black population who are Muslim. And uh, we do share this space with our Muslim brothers and sisters as well as well. In fact, uh, when Yanajaha was up here, we had a little bit of a conversation about that. Um, and I will say this every chance I get. I've been all over the world. Muslim people have treated me the most kind out of everyone that I've ever sat at a table with and broken bread with. So um, now one of the things that we, we need to t discuss is the more the morality of folks who are Christians, right? The, the thing is with Christian people, you get a really good sense of who they are morally because they have literally a textbook that tells them how to behave, tells them how to govern themselves, tells them how to conduct themselves. And, you know, it, it gives them a sort of a moral compass or a, or a moral guidepost, if you will. If I'm doing this, if you will. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. I think they call it the Bible basic instructions before leaving earth. Right. I like it. So for Christians, you would think that they would behave a certain way um, most all the time. You know, people are people and make mistakes, but for the most part, you have a, a general idea. Um, and what you find is that that is not often the case when it comes to them suffering some sort of loss, be it perceived or otherwise, you know? Um, and, the strange thing is that I believe largely conservative folks have been able to hijack the, the idea of Christianity and, and really folks call them evangelicals, but there's a lot of folks who feel like a vote for uh, a Republican candidate is a vote for Jesus and just across the board. That, and they just believe that, that there's no two ways about it. Um, but the crazy thing is, you know, we, we discuss a, a lot of, about the white moderates, right? These are the folks who are the biggest threat to our progress. These are the folks that are like, hey, man, that's y'all's problem. I got my own problems. So, you know, good luck. I'm not going to work against you, but I'm not going to work for you. But they're in the, the, the best position to help us make the world a little bit more equitable and, you know, a little bit more fair. Um, you know, we're constantly reaching out to other radio stations and, you know, so forth and trying to have these conversations with folks, a lot of whom are white, moderate males, you know, who uh, and then every so often we hear that sort of pushback, like, hey, you know what? I like what you're doing. It sounds great. I don't think it'll work here. And we know it'll work there, you know, works everywhere. Um, but one of the things that, you know, in doing the research for this uh, segment that I found out was that the legacy of the divisiveness in church, or not divisiveness, really the segregation in church, um, goes back to the civil rights movements, or rather it was, it was well documented in the civil rights movement, but it also goes back to those, those slave fields. So during the civil rights movement, the question was posed, why didn't white Christians show up? 
and and why are they so aligned with right politics and um i forget who his his name is not really important you know because why would we mention the name of someone who is so nasty but um you know i didn't put him in my notes but i remember the story and i feel like i should share this um there's an a a white pastor uh during that time who said you know basically he was trying to say that You know, bluebirds hang out with bluebirds. Bluebirds date or, or mate with other bluebirds. You know, that's what happens there. And that's the way God intended. Bluebirds don't, you know, uh, share time and space with like monkeys or sharks or, you know, insects or anything like that. They, they hang out with other bluebirds. Um, and that's the natural order of things. And this is the way that God intended, right? So similarly, black folks need to be with black folks on Sundays. White folks need to be with white folks on Sundays. And we, you know, both have our own relationships with God, but we don't need to mix in church, right? Um, I'm so glad I don't remember this guy's name because I want to. The journalist in me wants to remember his name, but he doesn't deserve any credit. I don't believe. But you could see how for a person who's a white moderate, a person who really doesn't want to be bothered, that's a very comforting thought. They can be Christian and then they have this little thin slice of flawed logic that helps them make sense of the world as it is because they want to keep it that way because they don't want to be bothered with the ugly reality of the situation that other human beings just like them are enduring some stuff just because they were born slightly different right now we know you and iq uh, hopefully our listeners know and if not hopefully we'll be able to educate them we know that human beings aren't bluebirds we're human beings. And where we are able to share more, we do. If we share language, then we can share more. If we share certain customs and certain ideas, is, is it the same God? Is it the same religion? Do we go to the same place at approximately the same time and offer the same relationship or cultivation of relationship with our higher power, you know? The, you know, what they're trying to do is look at what's different. What we're trying to do is look at what's same. And if you look at what's the same, there's like 99% the same, this little, little tiny little bit that's different, you know, well, they're, they're, they're black and we're white and that's the way it is in nature. So that's, you know, they, they hold on to that one little thing and try to make it their whole world. Um, and that type of split, in the, in, during the civil rights movement, when there were the freedom riders and, you know, these church folks were coming out and holding up their babies to scratch at, you know, the protesters. And they were like, you know, throwing bottles and throwing rocks at these folks. You know, um, this is prior to MLK taking center, center stage. Um, you know, it was, it was church people, you know, in, in the South, especially most of those people go to church. Right. And what you see is Christians out there behaving like devils mm. right? because they have this little bit of truth 
that makes them feel like they have some sort of superiority or something like that. Now, we know the civil rights movement is a long time ago, and we're dealing with a modern world today. But that racial divide still is present largely in a lot of churches, in a lot of communities. I'm not talking about newer churches whose sole purpose is to like, I want the pastor to be a woman and I want the, the assistant pastor to be a black person, you know, like not, not talking about those churches because those churches understand that you can do a lot more together than you can having the same old boring type of church, right? Um, and you can take some of the cultural nuances from different types of worshiping and make a more enjoyable experience. You know, there, the Bible says, if, if I'm not mistaken, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, right? And like, like our, our brother Canadian chest hair mentioned in his TikTok video, uh, I, think, I think that's one element that black folks definitely got down if you go to a black church. You know, it's, it's a very happy place. You know, folks is happy to be there. They run, they jump, they shout, have the time of their life, right? Look forward to it. Um, but then there's some other places where uh, that is not the case at all. And unfortunately, politics and ideas about how we should interact with each other, how we should treat each other um, is very much ingrained in that place. Now, I know a lot of us listening to this, we're not church folks, right? But we know church folks, so we have to know how to deal with church folks. Um, black folks, I have to say this, got it honestly, because again, when you're in, in those slave fields, you know, where your only social hour of the week is when you're at church or just before or just after, um, that's where you're able to share a huge part of your humanity because you're confined and relegated to just that working or sleeping, right? As a, as a slave with, with no freedom. So you share ideas, not just religion. You share uh, jokes, not just religion. You share um, uh, stories, not just religion. You share, you know, a lot of things. And so that's why in, in black churches, it's a huge pillar in the black community because the legacy of slavery ensured that church would really be The, the, the great watering hole, if you will. And the same could be said, perhaps not as intensely, but the same could be said about, you know, white churches as well. And again, there's a lot of politics, a lot of ideas, a lot of beliefs that's wrapped up into those, um, those buildings and, the, and, and those fellowships, you know. And I think that there's really something to be said about going and visiting with some people who don't pray the exact same way that you pray, right? But there is something further to be said about going to a place where people do pray this exact same way that you pray, but perhaps don't look exactly like you. And that's what I wanted to talk about today. So before we go any further, Q, your thoughts, your reaction. You know, it's it's really difficult to not digest the very blatant hypocrisy with some of our very, very 
forward, outward religious folks. Um, you said earlier about casting your vote for the, the evangelical, even though you know that his real life practices <laughs> don't match the campaign speech that you know he's just saying so you can all feel better about the fact that you voted for him for reasons that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Um, across racial lines, however, the hypocrisy exists. You know, people who are most critical, judge the, judge the harshest, uh, look down upon, cast out, are the people who wear, you know, at the people who at the same time are wearing a what would Jesus do bracelet on their wrist, mm. you know, preaching about forgiveness and uh, a lack of pride. And, you know, there's a, there's a great conflict with the way that you and I grew up uh, because everyone we worship with did look like us. Yeah. They did respond in the same way to that organ playing, while the preacher was speaking. Yeah, man, that's normal. That's how it's supposed to go. That means it's good. Um, <laughs> however, prior to this conversation, like once we started having it, it's like, wow, that's so incredible and, and so incredibly and obviously true. But I haven't spent one day thinking about just how segregated our religious experience was. Just how very, very black our religious experience was. And that's, every black church everywhere, no matter how not black the city is, that sanctuary in that temple will look like Compton, will look like Detroit, will look like Oakland, will look like Newark, will look like Brooklyn, no matter where it is. Um, and never had I even traced it back to that being intentional as a form of separation. You know, oh. with that same that same Bible, those same scriptures we used to justify the subjugation, the enslavement, the segregation, the dehumanizing of people that look like you and I, Yeah, which is why I touched on the point earlier. The only reason we were even allowed to sing and shout and make a joyful noise is because we picked up the book they told us to pick up their God, their religion, their worship. Uh, we adopted it. It became ours, but, you know, initially we didn't have a say-so. You want to hear something funny, Q? Um, I, uh, this was years ago. Um, I think I was still in Dr. Westenberg's class, but we, uh, I took an African-American literature class that she taught. And part of the curriculum was to read some of the sermons that uh, the slave preachers would preach. And a lot of those sermons were about freedom, the children of Israel, God leading people to, you know, the, the, the promised land and out of their chains and out of their bondage. Um, so it's just interesting that that same Bible that was used to justify slavery um, and that ended up ultimately, uh, not the Bible, but the slavery and the practice and so forth and how cultures come together and are shared, ended up you know, creating a world where we're so segregated. That was the same Bible that these folks preach from in hopes of one day being free from the bondage they were in. Um, but, you know, that's just kind of how it is. So I maintain if you can go to 
hang out with some folks on Sunday and who knows, you might even enjoy yourself. So, and if you need some recommendations, reach out to us, no matter what city yeah, you're yeah, in. Yeah, just hit us up. We're, we're at Civic Cypher, man. We know black folks, church folks always know some other church folks in some other cities. So, you know, I, I'm, on, I'm not going to say I know all the church folks, but I definitely know some black folks and they are church folks. Shout out to my Aunt Angie one time. Anyway, um, it's time for the Way Black History Fact. I'm really excited about this one. Actually, we were, I wanted to do this one a few weeks ago, but I just, there were some other pressing things and I had to move some stuff around. But today we're going to uh, discuss a woman named Bessie Coleman. Um, this uh, article I'm going to read comes from womenshistory.org. It was written by Carrie Lee Alexander. Uh, and I'll just kind of burn through it real quick. It's not too long. Uh, Bessie Coleman soared across the sky as the first African-American and first Native American woman pilot known for performing flying tricks. Coleman's nicknames were Brave Bessie, Queen Bess, and the only race aviatrix in the world. Her goal was to encourage women and African-Americans to reach their dreams. Unfortunately, her career ended with a tragic plane crash, but her life continues to inspire people around the world. Born in Atlanta, Texas on January 26, 1892, Bessie Coleman had 12 brothers and sisters. Her mother, Susan Coleman, was an African-American maid, and her father, George Coleman, was a sharecropper of mixed Native American and African-American descent. In 1901, her father decided to move back to Oakland to try to escape discrimination. Bessie's mother decided not to go with him. Instead, the rest of the family stayed in Waxahachie, Texas. Hopefully I got that right. Bessie grew up helping her mother pick cotton and wash laundry to earn extra money. By the time she was 18, saved she saved enough money to attend the Colored Agricultural and Normal University, which is now Langston. Shout out to Langston one time. Um, Langston is an HBCU for our brothers and sisters who may not be black or otherwise may not be familiar with Langston University. HBCU stands for Historically Black College and University. Earlier in the show, I mentioned the House, Morehouse University, that is also a Historically Black College and University. Um, she dropped out of college after only one semester because she could not afford to attend. At age 23, Coleman went to live with her brothers in Chicago. She went to the Burnham School of Beauty Culture in 1915 and became a manicurist in a local barbershop. Meanwhile, her brothers served in the military during World War I and came home with stories from their time in France. Her brother John teased her because French women were allowed to learn how to fly airplanes, and Bessie could not. This made Bessie want to become a pilot. She applied to many flight schools across the country, but no school would take her because she was both African-American and a woman. Famous African-American newspaper publisher Robert Abbott told her to move to France where she could learn how to fly. She began taking French classes at night because her application to flight schools needed to be written in French. Oh, this gets wow. Yeah. Finally, Coleman was accepted at the Caudron Brothers School of Aviation in Le Crotoy, France. She received her international pilot's license on June 15, 1921, from the Fédération Aéronautique Internationale. Uh, dang, I, I was like three different accents there, but bear with me. <laughs> Sounded a little Italian at the end. Um, Coleman's dream was to own a plane and to open up her own flight school. She gave speeches and showed films of her air tricks in churches, theaters, and schools to earn money. 
She refused to speak anywhere that was segregated or discriminated against African-Americans. In 1922, she performed the first public flight by an African-American woman. She was famous for doing loop-de-loops and making the shape of an eight in an airplane. People were fascinated by her performances, and she became more popular both in the United States and in Europe. She toured the country giving flight lessons, performing in flight shows, and she encouraged African-Americans and women to learn to fly. All right, we're almost done. Only two years into her flight career, Coleman survived her first major airplane accident in February of 1923. Her airplane engine suddenly stopped working and she crashed. She was badly hurt in the accident and suffered a broken leg, few cracked ribs, and cuts on her face. Thankfully, Coleman was able to fully heal from her injuries. This accident did not stop her from flying. She went back to performing dangerous air tricks in 1925. Her hard work helped her save enough money to purchase her own plane, a Jenny in JN-4. Soon, she returned to her hometown in Texas to perform for a large crowd. Because Texas was still segregated, the managers planned to create two separate entrances for African-Americans and white people to get into the stadium. Coleman refused to perform unless there was only one gate for everyone to use. Talk to him. I love that part. After many meetings, the managers agreed to have one gate, but people would still have to sit in segregated sections of the stadium. She agreed to perform and became famous for standing up for her beliefs. Um, and uh, uh, she, she had a plane crash. I'll skip that part. Um, uh, her death was heartbreaking for thousands of people. Uh, famous activist Ida B. Wells uh, performed at the funeral to honor Coleman in Chicago. In 1931, the Challenger Pilots Association of Chicago started a tradition of flying over Coleman's grave every year. By 1977, African-American women pilots formed the Bessie Coleman Aviators Club. In 1995, the Bessie Coleman stamp was made to remember all of her accomplishments. I wanted to read that all because there's something very familiar about being the first people to do something, you know, uh, at least to, to me, you know, um, and, and to you, obviously, because... Folks that don't know, um, and I'll tell the story in brief, we worked at a radio station uh, in Phoenix, and we wanted to create this show, basically. We didn't have a name for it at the time, but we had an idea. And long story short, we had to work very, very hard and overcome a lot of adversity in order for you to hear our voices right now. Um, I like the way you put that. Yeah. And I think at the end of when everything's said and done, our contribution, you know, we're not pilots, so our contribution won't be that we were the first pilots to do anything. But maybe we'll be the first, you know, uh, people to create a show, a black show that is largely tailored to non-black people about, you know, helping them to become better allies and to give them a glimpse into what it's like um, to process events black events and you know have a little bit more empathy in the dialogue and um, hopefully grow together as brothers and sisters that's really what we wanted to do and uh you know there have been some challenges along the way and i'm sure there will continue to be challenges but there's a lot more optimism uh with our story and a lot more optimistic uh pathways that are continually presenting themselves to us and we're very grateful for that um so yeah in short, that's the story of Bessie Coleman. 
and uh, why I wanted to share that um, with everyone. Now, with that said, um, I do want to make sure that everyone knows that if you want to listen to this show in its entirety, let's say you got it halfway through, um, you can check out our website, civiccipher.com. Um, you, if you want to listen to it as a podcast, anything like that, it's, it's all up there. Um, you, you can watch it on YouTube and so forth and so on. Um, we are in the process of working on a few deals with a few uh, major media companies and radio stations uh, and growing the footprint of the show. It's already a national show, but really some exciting things are in the works. Um, a lot of those things cost money. So if donating is something that you're able to do, you're able to do that on the website as well. And then of course, follow us on our social media because even that little bit helps too. Uh, we're at Civic Cypher on all platforms. And I think that's going to do it for us this week. So uh, once again, I'm Ramses Ja. They call me Q Ward. And until next week, y'all. Peace. Hey, yo, we handle it. These brothers are fabulous. Dilated showing you where rhyme travel is. Worlds is spittoon from sunlight to moon. Busting off stage like gunfights and moons. Pull my mic back. You like that? Journalists with journalists too. We can strike back. Hardcore reporters with orders from headquarters. Behind enemy lines, sidestepping the borders. With press passes, we bring it to you as it happens. The streets love my crew for music and rapping. Street commander slash beat expander Here to fight the slander with the proper propaganda What's happening? You got a question, then ask it The news is just a TV show Get past it And this from a quiet wartime journalist Headlines Wake up, refuse, and resist Like this Like this Like this Like this